We're starting a, a series on Amos, uh, one of these Old Testament prophets. So if you've got a Bible, and I think it really would be helpful if you uh, can get hold of one from somewhere, either bring your own or use the one that's in the church, uh, we're going to just be reading from Amos chapter 1. If you want to know where Amos is, well, it's the Old Testament. You kind of get halfway through the Old Testament, you get the Psalms, and then you move forward and you've got the three big uh, books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And they were kind of known as the major prophets simply because of their size, of their writings. And then you have a string of shorter books, um, which collectively are known as the minor prophets, not because they're less significant, just because they're much, much shorter. And uh, as you go through towards the end of the Old Testament, you'll find Amos. Of course, the other way of finding it is to go to the front of your Bible, look under the contents list and go straight to the page. Um, But it sort of sets the scene for this book. When Ian was leading uh, and introducing worship for us this morning, he talked about this idea, the temptation to make God in our own image, to make God into a picture or an idea that we can cope with, a God that we feel comfortable with, a God who essentially we recruit onto our side, A a God that we think is kind of a little bit like us, but just slightly better. And I think it's a temptation that has been there forever, really. Um, This, someone said many, many years ago, that God created humans in his image, and we have done him the favor of returning that act. In other words, that we've made God in our image. And what Amos does, Amos is living... 2,750 years ago, nearly 3,000 years ago. And Amos is writing to a people, and what Amos is wanting to say really is, what sort of vision do you have of God? What do you think God's like? And actually, if you think about it, that sets the scene for pretty much the whole of life. If you think God's the God of justice and that God's on the side of those who are suffering, that will cause you to act in certain ways. If you think God is the God who rewards very good behavior, that will cause you to act in certain ways. If you think God is on the side of the powerful, that will cause you to act in certain ways. And as long as we've been going as the church the church, the big C church, the 2,000-year story of church. Every now and again, what we've had are people who come up and remind us again, do you remember your own scriptures? Do you remember this book that kind of wants to get your attention again because you're in danger of making God in your own image? So when you read something like Amos, Amos is not going to be a book where you're necessarily always going to feel very comfortable I don't know about you, but uh, for many years in the Bible I use at home, I will write in my Bible and I'll underline certain texts and I'll, um, you know, and I've got a Bible on my desk at home that I was given when I was 21 and 
And over the last 10 years, I've, I've written a lot in that book. Um, that's, that Bible from 21 to now is... <laughs> It's kind of like a mix between a diary, because there's dates on the side of the Bible that refer to events or refer to things when I was reading and they were really important. There are certain texts that are underlined. And when I was young, I think I did what a lot of young people did, was you find the good bits. And you find the sort of the individual verse in the midst of all the murky passage, and you, you I'll have that bit. But actually, as I've got older and you read more, you realize actually you're not just looking for the good little verse, the verse that's encouragement. Actually, you want it to read as a whole. And when in the next few weeks, and I think it's about five or I think it's five weeks, I can't quite remember. But what we're going to do is we're going to read through together this book of Amos. We read it because we need to get a grip of who God is. The second reason that every now and again we'll tackle a book like this, is, and again Ian said it, is because we try and read at least once a year a book of the Bible that actually either is a little bit tricky or generally we wouldn't necessarily get to. And so that's the kind of reason we're doing it together. Shall we read together? The words of Amos one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, was son, the son of Johash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Carmel is a mountain. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I'll send fire on the house of Haziel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I'll break down the gate of Damascus. I'll destroy the king who's in the valley of Avon and the one who holds a scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I'll send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I'll destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds a scepter in Ashkelon. I'll turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I'll send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I'll send fire on Timan that will consume the fortresses of Bozra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I'll set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume the fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Their king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. 
For three sins of Moab, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath because he burned to lime the bones of Edom's king. I'll send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriath. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I'll destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath. Because they've rejected the law of the Lord and they've not kept his decrees. Because they've been led astray by false gods, their gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I'll send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I'll not turn back my wrath. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so they profane my holy name. They lie down between, uh, beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. You commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I'll crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. <laughs> Pat says at the front, wow. <laughs> well, when I was 21 in my Bible, that didn't have any underlining. Let's make our way through to see if we can make sense of it. Because I want to suggest by the end of this, you will hopefully see that though this has been written 2,800 years ago, it could actually have been written today. And we'll make sense of it, what it means for us. I want to talk about the awesome God. I hate that word awesome. I think it's been a devalued word. I know that you use it all the time. Um, but it's a devalued word. I know you genuinely mean it. This is now a personal conversation we probably have to have afterwards. Um, uh, the, the, the word awesome has been devalued in my mind. When an ice cream is awesome, nothing is awesome. Um, in other words, what we've done is we've taken a really big word and we've diminished it. But actually, I think here we can use the word awesome in its correct word. This God makes you go, wow, but not in a good way. Not in a way that you go, oh, that's brilliant. But wow, in a way that you suddenly hear, and that's all. Who is this God? It starts, the book starts with a shepherd. A shepherd who's just on the outside, on the outskirts, who doesn't belong to the powerful people. But the first words he says is, the Lord roars. And it is that image of this is God who is going to, it's almost like you're out in the windiest of days and you're facing the wind and the wind is blowing into your face. And it's like, <gasps> it's God's hairdryer treatment. It's the Lord roars. And the Lord 
is clearly angry. And the reason that um, some of us involuntarily will want to go, wow, is because we don't often hear about God being like this. We're holding two things in, in, at the same time here. And we've got to try and make sense of them. Firstly, we've sung a song this morning about God being a good, good father who loves us. And yet here we're reading about God who roars against the nations and against his own people. How do you hold a God of love and a God who gets angry together? Well, we might come to that, but the important thing is we do. The second question is, what sort of God do you want? Do you want a God that when atrocity happens goes... Do you want a God when the worst of the worst of the worst happens in our world goes, oh, it's such a shame? Or do you want a God who goes, actually, you rouse me to wrath? What sort of God do you want? What sort of God do you want when you watch the news and you watch it from the viewpoint of those to whom the worst of the worst is being happening? Uh, is happening? What sort of God do you want? Well, this is the God the Bible gives you. A God who says, number one, I'm intrinsically involved in my world. Secondly, I see the atrocity. Thirdly, I am not dispassionate. Fourthly, I don't just roll my eyes and go, oh, isn't it a shame? I'm a God who's involved here. When was it written? Well, two kings are mentioned. King Uzziah of Judah. If you want to read more about him, you go to 2 Chronicles 26. A long reign, 50 years. And in Israel, King Jeroboam. And he's written about in 2 Kings 14. So at this time, what's happened is the people of God are in two nations, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And they've got two different kings. But they're God's people. Together, they're God's people. The kingdom is split, but they're God's people. The other other thing to know at this point is this, that their society in both nations were doing really well. Their boundaries were being extended. They were being very successful at foreign policy. They were rich. They were safe. They were expanding. And everybody thought, these are the good days. So there was nothing causing trouble for people in Israel and Judah. Everybody thought it was going well. And actually, it's really easy when everything's going well for you to think, now God's really pleased with me. And it's still the case. And it's really easy when things are not going well for you to think God's really angry with you. The Bible, time and time and time and time and time again, really makes it clear. You can't tell just from how comfortable your life is to know what God's really feeling about what's going on. Sometimes the Bible's clear. For some people, you're in the worst of all worst places, and actually you're in the God is for you. You've not offended him. You've not walked away from him. And at other times, you're in the best of places, and everything's swimming and going so well, and actually you might be far away from God. You can't tell just by how things are going in your own life. It's not that simple an equation. Okay. So that's when it was. Where's it all happening? Well, I wanted to put up a map. This is obviously a modern map of the the region that we're looking at. There's Israel now, okay? And Israel and Judah would be pretty much, not dissimilar in terms of uh, 2,800 years ago. And then you've got all these nations around. You've got Syria with the horrendous things that are going on in Syria at the moment. And all the way around, you've got Egypt and Turkey and everything else. 
You've got the European Union up here. This is where we are. So just to give you a sort of sense, and that's North Africa. I know you know where this is, but I just want to remind you so that you can sense that this was a real place. And when it was being written about here, you had, still had nations all around. And in the same way as Russia uh, infringing Turkey's sort of airspace this weekend, and Turkey are going, if you carry on doing that, we're going to start attacking you back. And just as Syria is in such a civil war mess, and in the same way as we've got concerns about that, that sort of whole Middle East, uh, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. So 2,800 years ago, the concerns were about Egypt. And the concerns were about, it wasn't called Iran then, but Iran, Iraq, and this area. And there were nations all around. And when Amos begins his book, he begins with God speaking to six different nations. And that, that pattern from verse 3 of chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 4, is it stylizes. For three sins of, names a place, even for four, I will not turn back. And then outlines, what have you done? And in Damascus, he talks about the inhumanity of war. And the particular offense of that area of Damascus, it was thought like a city-state, not just a town, but a city-state was, to use the language, you threshed Gilead. And what they did was when they were being attacked and when they were fighting back, they got these sledges and they put stones in them and they went over land and they desecrated the land and they desecrated people. They just did wartime atrocity. Gaza, what's your, um, what's your sin? You took captive whole communities and you sold them to Edom, to another nation down here. So in other words, you went against people and you took people and you trafficked them. You used people for your own end. Tyre, you were in a trade treaty with people who treated you like brothers and you broke your promises and you went back to war. Edom, you've got this burning hatred. You're warmongering. You're provoking all the time. Ammon, for us, perhaps some of the worst things. You ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend your borders. You went after the weakest and you used and abused in order that you might get your, your borders extended. And Moab, down here, what did you do? You uh, desecrated the graves of your enemy. You burned the bones of Edom's king. You burned them to lime. You just took it and you desecrated the whole. I think if you'd have asked any of those nations, there would have been good reasons why they did that. We're at war. They're our enemy. We need to show them who's right. We need to uh, show our power. And God says to people who've trafficked people, to people who have abused and used the weakest, atrocities with women, who've pointless, pointlessly humiliated their neighbours, who've provoked their neighbours to war, God says... I'm on your case. 
I'm on your case. And for us, I believe it's the same. Whether it's the atrocity of what people do in the Congo or what what ISIL do or what Russia sets out to do, what happens in North Korea. It's easy to watch the news through our lens and go, we see atrocity. What does God think? God says, I see the wrecking of humanity and I'm angry. I'm angry when you do this to each other. I'm angry when you take these, this attitude to one another. Whether it's in a boardroom and it's about how do you get maximum profit and you overlook people or if it's on the battleground. God says, you can't act like that way and think you're going to get away with it. That's what Amos says. And of course, if you're in Israel and Judah here... That's exactly what you want to hear. That's exactly what you want to hear. Because you're aware of this. Because you've been, you've been on the receiving end of that. And you want God to get them. You want God to get them. And then he turns to them and he goes, but Judah. And he, it's interesting when he writes, he uses exactly the same frame, exactly the same language as he's used about the surrounding nations. He said, but you, Judah, you people of God, you've rejected the law. You've been led led astray. You've been led astray by false gods or lies. And Israel, chapter 2, verse 6 and 8, you've oppressed the poor. You've forgotten justice. You've been engaged in sexual abuse and you've committed sacrilege. And you thought it would be okay. And most of all, you've trampled on your history. You've contradicted your salvation. So Amos, this shepherd from outside the power structure, steps in to the political system and goes, God sees the nations around us, but God sees what happens really close to home. There's been a TV series and there's been films, a new film called Spotlight, that's been brought out about the way the church, over the years, over in our lifetime, the church has dealt with sexual abuse. And the answer is we dealt with it really badly. And you might want to say, and I would want to say, it wasn't me. But I identify with the people of God. And if the people of God don't put up their hand and go, we were wrong. We were wrong. And the problem is, sometimes we don't put our hand up. We try and make excuses. Sometimes the way the church has dealt with money has been wrong. We're part of a Pentecostal charismatic tradition. Some church leaders in that tradition have been wrong with the way they've attracted money and used money and used power. We've been wrong. And sometimes we've not said it enough to say it's not right. It's not right to call yourself a preacher and then have a private jet. It's just not right. You're not that important. That's what Ryanair's for. (laughs) Okay, you're not that bad, but... (laughs) But there's a happy medium between Ryanair and a private jet. It's not right when preachers 
go on television to collect money for their own ministries that make them rich at the excuse of people who are vulnerable and poor and desperate. It's not right. And I don't care whether people call it blessed or they've been a blessing. It's not right. It's why, on the whole, we ought probably not really to be watching religious broadcasting. Because we feed it. God cares about justice. God cares about our propensity to get rich and to get lazy and to use power wrong. I've said for as long as since I read Richard Foster's book, which probably is about 20 years ago, there are only three major sins, and it's money, sex, and power, and we're all prone to it. And we need to be reminded that we're not, we don't get a carte blanche on this. And I don't care if you're in positions of responsibility and power or whether you've got no power. Money, sex, and power are the things that come back to us, and we need to call one out, another out on it when we see it wrong because this sort of stuff is not just for there, but it's for here. What makes you think you get into a position of power and father and son can use the same woman? What made you think you could do that? Presumably you didn't think God bothered. Presumably you thought you were immune. Presumably your heart had grown so hard. The Lord roars. What I want to say is really quite simple, I think. I want to be on God's side and not on the receiving end. I want God to act in justice. I want those kids who've been abused. I want those women who've had to go through atrocities. I want those people who've been um, at the mercy of, um, in the widest sense, people inspired by a false religious ideal who would call themselves Daesh or ISIL. I don't want those deaths to have been for nothing. I don't want those people who drowned this week in the Mediterranean Sea not to have justice in the end. I don't want to look at the news and go, well, that's just the way the world is. I don't want to be a Christian who goes, well, I know Jesus loves me and that's okay. I want a God who says, this is my world and I still have my hand on it. I want the kingdom to come. And I can, like the best of us and the rest of us, I can get as irate and as pompous and melodramatic as the rest. But I also know that at the same time as asking for the kingdom to come, I need to be forgiven. Which is why the prayer runs through from, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, through to forgive us our sins. The big problem for all of the Prophet, prophets was this. God wanted his people to be dazzlingly different and they'd become alarmingly alike. Our life is to demonstrate something of the gospel. But our life begins on the inside and when our hearts grow cold, our actions become callous. 
When our hearts are full of fear, then we start to protect ourselves against other people. And I don't know, you know, you don't want to sort of stir up fear and all the rest of it, but I suspect that what happened in Stockholm last night and in London during the afternoon, where people started to attract, attack random migrants, is probably not going to be the last time we start to see this. And later on in the year, when we start talking about what we're going to do about Europe, and we get a free vote to decide whether we want to stay in or out, some people will want us to make that decision. And whatever the decision is, that's up for us, of course. But some people will want us to make that decision based on fear. And it's the fear of the other. It's the fear of those who've come amongst us and they look for asylum and they look for help. And they're not the other because they're sitting in the room with us this morning. It's not them. They're here. And in a moment or two, we're going to take communion together and they're in the room with us this morning. And the church are designed to be the dazzlingly different people who go, it's not about your race. It's not about how much money you've got. It's not about your past. It's not about your future. It's not about your gender. It's not about the way you see life. It's actually about Jesus. I will not be driven by the fear inculcated by the red tops or by politicians who are cheap. Because actually we're going to be the dazzlingly different people of God. But for that to happen, I need my heart to be, to be constantly warmed. Because left to myself, left to my own devices, we're all the same. Not in my backyard. What's happening to my area? Is he going to pull down the cost of my house? What's going to happen to my kids? Jesus comes. And... Um, in a moment or two, when we sing again, one of the songs that Ian's going to lead us to sing in is about Jesus being the Messiah. And although it's got echoes of religious connotation, actually, everybody at the time when they sang about Jesus being Messiah, it was like, Jesus, you're the ruler. Come and rule again. Jesus said some scary things to people who would want to follow him. And one of the scary things is this is at the end of the day, when all things are worked out, some people will go, Lord, Lord, we did all this in your name. And he will say, no, you didn't. Not in my name. Don't know you. Because hearts matter. Because forgiveness matters. Not cheap grace, but an acute awareness of our own likelihood of being like everybody else. So why is Amos in our Bible? I think Amos is there. One of the reasons is because it's an account of what happened and it explains why the people of God would be taken to exile, why they'd lose everything. I think the second reason it's there is to explain who God is and who God is in relation to his people. But I think the other reason that Amos is included in is because it's a warning the warning. It's a warning to God's own people that there's some times when we can just be exactly like everybody else when God has so much more. <clears throat>